Hello everyone and welcome to the Loopcast. I'm Chelsea Damon and today we have a very interesting show on the Oath Keepers, which is a group here in the States. And I've been wanting to do more shows on domestic issues, so I'm looking at this as a kickoff to hopefully more shows along the line of this topic in the future. So first of all, I'm very happy to have Kim Brown with us to discuss this topic. And Kim is an analyst by trade and is currently employed by the New Jersey Office of Homeland Security and Preparedness, where she's been there for the last nine years. While there, she's been covering domestic terrorism for the last six years, so she's the perfect guest for this topic. And Kim also has an impressive military background. She served for eight years in the U.S. Army Reserves and was deployed to Afghanistan shortly after 9-11. So first of all, Kim, thank you so much for coming on the show to discuss the Oath Keepers. Thank you for having me. To start off with, why not we discuss who the Oath Keepers are, what are their objectives, and what are their goals? Well, when we talk about the Oath Keepers, we're talking about a paramilitary organization whose goals are to defend or uphold their view of the Constitution. They believe that the government has too much overreach and can be conspiracy theorists. Uh, as well. Uh, Oath Keepers do justify their use of force or violence to counter their perceived threats to any uh, violations of the U.S. Constitution. And if we were to look at the Oath Keeper website, uh, they actually put on there that uh, they pledge to fulfill the oath of all military and police to, uh, to defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign domestic. And they also go on further to say that the oath is to the Constitution itself, not to politicians. So if they're given an order that they deem unconstitutional, they'll not follow it. They, they will not follow it. So an example of that is an uh, order to disarm American people. They would do that as unconstitutional and not follow suit. So with that being said, that's why you may see oath keepers show up um, at different demonstrations or rallies or standoffs such as Bundy or Oregon or Ferguson, uh, because there's something going on there where, uh, that they view as unconstitutional. And um, I just wanted to say that when we look at Oath Keepers, um, we don't look at the organization as a whole. We're looking at a segment of the organization, and we're looking at those individuals that cross the line or are engaging um, in acts of terrorism. So the definition we use, which is from the FBI, so we're looking at if it involves uh, dangerous um, acts dangerous to human life that violate federal or state law, the use of intimidation or coercion of a civilian population, or the use of intimidation and coercion uh, to influence um, the policy of the government. And one of the key factors we hear a lot when it comes to the Oath Keepers is this idea of upholding the Constitution. And mm -hmm. with your experience and your background in researching them and following events attached to them, how much of this is real fact or how much of this is a rhetoric on the part of the group? Well, again, their view of the Constitution and, you know, that's what it comes down to. It's, uh, but I think uh, also a big factor is how you de decide to defend it peacefully or with force. So Oathkeeper, um, as an organization, they reach out to active duty, uh, veterans, and uh, so their goal, you know, as far as what they say is to remind those individuals of their oath, to teach them more about the Constitution they swore to defend, and to inspire them to defend it. But then the question 
you know, I would ask them is like, well, how are you inspiring them to defend it? And what are you telling them to, um, how are you inspiring them? And what are you telling them to do to, in order to defend it? So I think that that's where we separate, you know, the law of uh, law abiding oath keeper and those who are crossing the line and attempting to do, uh, you know, the coercion, intimidation, or influence uh, uh, government or civilian populations. And, you know, it, and they kind of look at it as if, you know, this is how I view the Constitution, and if you're not doing this, then you're not with me, you're against me. So those other law enforcement, possibly military, government, that are not doing what the Oath Keepers identify as unconstitutional, um, then they're going to say, you know, you're not patriots and you're not with us. And looking at the establishment of the Oath Keepers and how this group is put together here in the States, uh, they've established themselves as a not-for-profit group with a board of directors and business cards. So why don't we look at this a bit? Because they really legally set themselves up here. Right. Uh, so, yeah, they have a board of directors um, that's made up of military and law enforcement, uh, with Stuart Rhodes being the founder and director. They have state reps or coordinators. For example, New Jersey has about 10 coordinators, as well as a bunch of meetup locations throughout the state. They have, uh, New Jersey has a communications director. And for the Oath Keepers in general, the national organization, so, uh, they also have different types of membership that uh, people are able to apply to, apply for. Um, as well as an online forum. I think the uh, membership for um, for one for one person is forty dollars a year, and there's also uh, different levels: a lifetime member or associate. So, yes, they they really have everything set up, almost run like a business, um, and it really legitimizes the organization. But Keep in mind, this legitimate organization also justifies the use of force or violence to counter what they perceive um, or any perceived threats to the violation of the Constitution. And they have people within that organization who are willing to use violence or force. So I think that's one thing to, you know, keep in mind when we're thinking about the Oath Keepers. So, you know, looking at them and looking at the website, yeah, they're set up and there doesn't appear to be anything um, wrong or, you know, that one could look at and say, you know what, I, I don't, um, I don't think this, uh, this is a good organization, but when you really start to dig into who's in the organization, that's when I would say that you, um, would have questions. So looking at the overall membership of this group, and as you mentioned before, we have individuals that have joined the Oath Keepers, maybe because they, want to see the Constitution upheld, but potentially they do not want to use force or gaining ends to their means. Could you say that the Oath Keepers could be consisted of moderates and then non-moderates? And if so, who are the non-moderates in this group? So, yeah, I, I do believe that there's a line between those that want to uphold the Constitution but want to do it the right way and those that are willing to use violence or force to get their point across. We've seen several instances where Oath Keepers have um, gone to such places um, 
you know, in Ferguson or even the individuals that were arrested in um, in Oregon because they were attempting to use force, um, force or violence. And I think uh, a good example would be that of LaVoy Finnecum, uh, who was at the Oregon um, occupation, which then turned into the standoff. Law enforcement was attempting to pull them over or pull him over. He wouldn't stop. There was a high-speed chase. And Finnecum got out the vehicle and... Uh, what we saw was that he attempted to draw his weapon. So again, looking at uh, kind of the by, by any means necessary to uphold that constitution. So I think when you look at that as an example, yeah, I think there is a line between those that want to do it the right way and then those that want to do it by any means necessary and are willing to either die for the cause or use some type of violence um, to, um, to change the government. Looking at the membership of this group, could you say that it's mainly made up of white men of a constitutionalist or libertarian lean, or is this a group that is diverse? Um, I think that, uh, you know, not knowing the actual breakdown, I think that there is some diversity within the organization. They do have African-Americans and Latino members, and Rose actually describes himself as a quarter Mexican um, he's interviewed African-Americans uh, on the website to show that his organization is diverse, and they actually joke, the African-American members actually joke about being uh, members of the Klan because it was put out there that the organization is uh, totally white, you know, made of white supremacists or racist. Um, and also, um, if we look at uh, the incident in uh, Ferguson, one of the Oath Keepers there was actually uh, Filipino. But I think when looking at the makeup of the organization, it's not so much the uh, who's in it as far as the color or the, the race or ethnicity, ethnicity, excuse me, it's the recruitment of the active duty, the veterans, the law enforcement um, over everything, you know, over, over anything. So the, the focus is more on them setting up the chapters in the various states and kind of spreading the knowledge to everyone. The recruitment of, say, ex-military, ex-police, and so forth, is that because it's a paramilitary group and people that are well-trained are highly regarded members? Um, well, I think the Oath Keepers, because they're a paramilitary organization, they want to keep that structure. And so keeping in mind that recruiting the people that have the same mindset of you who have already taken an oath is easier for them to kind of hit the ground running. Um, the former military and law, law enforcement can also teach other individuals about their rights and about the Constitution. So then you have almost like in-house teachers within your organization who can uh, spread the word so it's not just you talking about the organization and the people's rights. And then the other part of that is that these individuals come with a skill set. So, you know, hand-to-hand -hand combat, weapons training, those that are in intel, the intelligence field, medics and survival skills. So these are the people that you want to have during the standoff. Uh, so if anything were to happen, you have someone that has um, survival skills or is a medic that could help someone if they were injured or wounded. 
as you mentioned earlier, the Oath Keeper's president is E. Stuart Rhodes. And I was wondering if we could look at who this man is, what his background is, and why is he the main figure of the Oath Keepers? Well, Stuart Rhodes, he's a former Army paratrooper and uh, Yale Law School graduate. He founded the Oath Keepers in 2009 during the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. And what sparked this, the creation of the Oath Keepers is when he saw uh, military officials and law enforcement members uh, taking weapons from citizens. And he viewed this as unconstitutional, and we see that in his in the goals uh, on their website as uh, disarming Americans he doesn't agree with. So he saw this in uh, during Hurricane Katrina, and he thought or feared that this might set uh, an illegal precedent and that it could occur again in the future. So here we have the uh, Oath Keepers. And what sets him apart from other high-ranking officials in the group? Rose, he's not a behind-the-scenes guy. He's very vocal. He can be seen on online videos, interviewing members, uh, poking fun at the fact, again, that it's not an all-white organization. Um, in June 2015, uh, a New York Oath Keeper chapter, they held their first first annual awards dinner, and Stuart Rhodes was the guest speaker. And um, he gave about a 15-minute speech, and he's a great public speaker. So one of his points, uh, he was really pushing the Oath Keeper message and kind of really pulling on the heartstrings of those individuals that were sitting there. He told them about um, how he speaks to everyone about being an Oath Keeper when he's going through the airport and when he comes in contact with other uh, military or veterans that he speaks to them about the organization and some of the obstacles that he's come up against uh, when he tries to uh, defend himself. Uh, the other point um, he told was uh, his listeners was that it's their duty to uphold the Constitution. And once you know your duty and what is right, you have to go ahead and, and and do it and don't worry about the consequences. And so when I heard that, I rewound the video that uh, that was posted and I listened to that again. And, you know, that, you know, could be d disastrous. So depending on who's listening to that information, you know, don't worry about the consequences. So like we were talking about earlier, if there's someone who's willing to use force or violence to get their point across and you have your leader telling you don't worry about the consequences, that kind of opens the door for all types of stuff to happen. The other thing that he ended with is um, is what we saw in Katrina. Um, and he said that we'll see whatever happened in Katrina nationwide. And this kind of lends itself to that conspiracy theorist side that we were talking about, because he said the intent of the government is to collapse the economy, make it as bad as possible, control the masses, for the government to spark a race war, and to unleash ISIS cells that are all over the country. And he kind of painted a picture for his audience and then the last thing he said was, I'm calling on all the state organizers to hold an emergency summit and focus on security threats that we face, the open borders, the ISIS cells. So he kind of rallied the uh, the audience and his listeners 
to kind of come together and get it together and do something. And that can be viewed as two ways, you know, kind of getting people to understand and know their rights, but getting them to understand and know their rights and do something about it. And I think what they uh, in turn decide to do is when law enforcement uh, sometimes plays a part in some of the examples that we've seen, whether it's Ferguson, in Oregon, or in Nevada. He seems like a very charismatic figure. As you mentioned, he doesn't stand behind the scenes. He's not a figurehead as some other group leaders are in different militant groups, terrorist groups, and so forth. And the idea that he tells members and, and people that are following him not to worry about the use of force, it unfortunately, it sounds very similar to other militant groups here in the States, overseas, terrorist groups as well. And riling the groups up about ISIS is, is almost funny in the sense that his means are similar to theirs in the sense of using force and violence to gain an outcome. Yeah, I kind of thought the same thing. And I think that he, if anyone were to ever question him on it, he would say, well, I never said go out and do this. I said, uh, once you know your duty and know what is right, then you know what you have to do. So what, it's whatever that individual decides to do. But he's also saying don't worry about the consequences. So, yeah, I, I think, you know, he has an out because he didn't say go out and, you know, do harm to others, intimidate others, and, you know, uh, be violent. But he's leaving it for those individuals to kind of do what they want, which – I think when we listen to um, other speakers that are kind of uh, that are radical, kind of the same th that is the same guidance that they give their listeners. You know, this is the problem. There needs to be a change. How are you going to change it? And kind of walks them right up to the end, so they can they do whatever it is themselves. And sometimes that outcome is a violent outcome. Going back to the membership, the group itself boasts around 30,000 members. At least that's what they're saying on their website. In your estimation, is this a valid number? Is it less? Is it more? What are your thoughts? I don't think that I could uh, quantify the actual number. If the number is based on the people who paid their dues, maybe, or is it the number of people that have paid their dues since two, 2009, since the creation of the organization? But I know that I've seen the number 30,000 uh, in 2013 and currently. So I would say the number is a bit inflated and probably is the total of the past and present membership. Looking at the group's methods, which we've discussed slightly, it professes this massive respect for the Constitution. However, as we've seen with the Oregon standoffs, the issue in Nevada, it's really best known for engagements that have tended towards armed conflicts, which we have discussed, with government rather than the idea of a political effort to uphold and safeguard citizens' rights, which seems to be what they're putting out there, that we're upholding citizens' rights and, and the Constitution. However, their methods don't really reflect that. So I was wondering if we could look at this and, and discuss some of the incidents they've been involved in and how this is a re has reflected their narrative. 
Well, I think it goes back to their goals. So, you know, which are, like you said, to defend and uphold their view of the Constitution. And for some of them, it's by any means necessary. So if we look at the 2014 Bundy Ranch standoff, which was a dispute over cattle grazing, and that involved Cliven Bundy, father of Ammon Bundy, and he was uh, in a dispute against the Bureau of Land Management, or BLM, and uh, he would not stop letting his cattle graze, and so the BLM started taking his cattle. And for many militia and anti-government folks, they viewed this as unconstitutional, so uh, the the uh, turnaround time was about a week uh, after this started to happen, and then we started to see militia, some armed, start to show up in support of Bundy to, to get his cattle back. And, um, you know, I think that, you know, just this event, you know, really gave the um, anti-government movement a boost because they actually saw this uh, for a win for them. You know, they had people come from, all over to support uh, them, and they were able to defend themselves and stop the government. And so that's an example that militia in general or, and Oath Keepers can use to recruit uh, to recruit others as a win. So they can say, look, we stopped the government from taking uh, Clark and Bundy's uh, cattle. He's, still, he's able to uh, let his cattle graze, and the government is not, um, is not bother, bothering them bothering him anymore. Excuse me. I'm looking at that issue with Clive and Bundy's ranch and the Oath Keepers having a standoff and pretty much getting their way. Couldn't you say that that's a recipe for disaster for other events in the future? Well, I think the standoff reinvigorated the movement. Uh, they made a call uh, for, um, for support when the BLM came in to try to uh, take the cattle and, you know, they had hundreds of individuals show up to support the family. And uh, if we look at that as a win for militia as they do, and we kind of fast forward to Oregon and, you know, one would think that they would have received the same uh, response, but they didn't. They had maybe over three dozen people there. And I think that that was a big eye opener for the group. Uh, to get hundreds of individual support to support your family in 2014, and then we fast forward to 2016, and bear and they had barely anything. So I think that that's telling. You know, one, um, it could be that they jumped the gun, they didn't think it out, and just assumed that they would get the same response. Or did they do their homework? Did they get people on board before they made the decision uh, to occupy a federal building? Were talking to more people? Um, maybe outside of their network, or did no one really agree with what they were doing? And I don't think they thought about it. I think it was a, a knee-jerk reaction uh, coming from the military. When we went into the field, we had our basic needs, water, food, bedding. We actually planned. We had a checklist. And we also planned for the unexpected. You know, uh, and I don't think any of that was done, you know, if we look at what was going on in Oregon and, you know, that's why we saw the videos of guys complaining about being cold, no snacks, no food. Yes, it was very interesting to see this lack of supplies when they take over this wildlife um, refuge. And it was just very interesting because, as you said, they didn't really seem very prepared for a long-term standoff. Right. And, again, 
them being a paramilitary organization, one would think that that was um, that everyone would be thinking about that before a decision was made. So that kind of opens the door to, well, is everyone actually um, does everyone actually have that military background? In looking at the group, other intel shops or other communities have voiced that there is no vetting process for the Oath Keepers. So you can sign up. There's um, no place for you to actually prove that you have a military background. So I don't think they really know who they're getting when people sign up. They might be on board for upholding the Constitution, but what are the actual reasons? So is it to uphold the Constitution and you know, do it by means of letter writing and demonstrations, or is it to uphold the Constitution by any means necessary, so with force and violence? So I think when looking at this also, you have individuals, individuals that could be showing up to these standoffs or to these, um, to these different uh, events and not having the same intentions of what the Oath Keepers on a whole are uh, wanting to do. So, with, and what I mean by that is that you can have an individual that, you know, wants to be violent and wants to do harm against law enforcement and maybe doesn't like law enforcement, but joins this organization anyway, even though there's other law enforcement there and the intent is to do harm. So not knowing actually who is coming on board to your organization. Couldn't that potentially be detrimental to the group as a whole, since you're pretty much getting a mixed bag of members? Absolutely. And I think the uh, what Stuart Rhodes is attempting to do is not be the face all the time, but have those individual chapters. For, so in, in every state, kind of teach and run their state. And so if something happens, they can quickly mobilize but not knowing who's in the state, who's running it, how they're running it, and what their goals are, maybe don't align with, totally with the, with the Oath Keeper goals, that is a potential disaster. Because if you're bringing in others that maybe don't have the law enforcement, don't have the military, and you're teaching individuals that want to do harm, how to do hand-to-hand -hand combat, how to, do, um, how to uh, use weapons, and their intent is for something bad, definitely, and they're carrying the Oath Keeper name. So I, I don't think they know in the end what they're getting. Looking at the number of events they've been involved in, whether they're standoffs or other events, a lot of them tend to be around land issues. And I was wondering if we could look at that. Yeah, absolutely. So. Um, Definitely a lot of uh, land disputes, and I, I think it's where they're getting involved um, in these land, land disputes. So in Oregon, Nevada, the federal government owns a lot of the land. And how it's perceived by the Oath Keepers are that the ranchers or the individuals who use the land for their livelihood, they believe that the government is overreaching and attempting to expand their ownership of, of the land at the expense of, of the ranchers. And if you recall in the beginning of, the, um, of our discussion, the Oath Keepers, they believe that the government has too much overreach. So this kind of supports 
their beliefs. And so when they talk to others about the government and about their overreach, this is one of the examples that they can they can point to. You know, the government is coming in, they're taking land, you know, um, Rancher X has so many acres of land and has so much cattle, and the government is coming in and taking little by little, and, you know, he has he's using that for his livelihood. That is his livelihood. And, you know, then you'll see other people that resonating maybe with other people and them being understanding to that uh, fact and want to join the Oath Keepers. And going back to Stuart Rhodes, the president of the Oath Keepers, I found a quote from him in Police Magazine, which he was interviewed for about two years ago. And the quote is really interesting, and what it applies is very interesting because it's it's kind of a look into his mind frame and probably the mind frame of some of the members of the group. <clears throat> so I'm going to quote it, and I just want your thoughts on it. He says, the big concern we have is if we have a legion of oath breakers and traitors in Washington, D.C., who have utter contempt for the Constitution, then all they care about is power. They just do whatever they think they can get away with. So I will hand that over to you because that's a very strong statement. Yes. So, well, let's look at the first part of uh, what he said. He said um, the big concern we have is we have a legion of oath breakers and traitors. And this goes back to how they perceive the Constitution. So if you're not doing what they think is right, then you're an oath breaker, you're a traitor. And of all these incidents, uh, for those that they perceive are being wrong, they can, again, use that as an example of how the government is corrupt or the second part of his statement or doing what they think that they could get away with. And looking at that and this idea of developing, could you even call it a domestic army or is it too small for that? I mean, they seem like they're pretty well armed. What are your thoughts on their force in the bigger picture of United States security? Uh, well, I think calling them a domestic army is giving them too much credit. Army in the, in the sense that they could have hundreds, thousands of, uh, of individuals that are armed and that are members of their organization, but being organized and, you know, looking at that aspect of the military or army, no, I wouldn't say so. So if we look at the intent of the, of the group, I think it's good to uphold the, the Constitution, but it's all about how you go about, about it. So the violence, the coercion, the, threat, the threats, I think that's where the line gets drawn. And I think if we look at future events, I think we'll see attempts to recreate the Bundy standoff. While the total numbers in Oregon were not great, we could look at the death of Lavoie Finnecombe. He was one of the one of the individuals who law enforcement attempted to arrest with Ammon Bundy, but uh, after a high speed chase, uh, law enforcement caught up to him and he actually attempted to pull pull his weapon out on law enforcement and was shot and killed. And again, while we look at Oregon as not a, a good outcome for uh, militia or oath keepers in general the death of Lavoie Finnecombe could be used as a martyr for the group, so someone that died for the cause. And so I think we will see militia, oath keepers, three percenters, groups like that, using Lavoie Finnecombe as an example for someone who did the right thing. And would he kind of be considered 
if you want to use the term martyr, the first martyr of the Oath Keepers? Uh, yeah, I would say so. And I think because this was so big, you know, it, it went on for, um, it started at, in the beginning of January. And so it played out a lot on um, social media. And I think that um, with the death of him, yeah, definitely uh, could and probably will be used as a martyr. Looking at all of the standoffs they've been involved in and the situations they've been involved in, they have this idea of stepping into situations under the guise of providing social order. But here in the States, we have a lot of laws. We have police forces, etc., army. The idea of creating the social order that they seem to be think that they're doing, it's almost contradictory because a lot of the time they step into these situations, like in Ferguson potentially, and they actually create more disorder. What does this imply for the idea of order here in the U.S. or disorder, considering some of the events that we've seen them involved in? Well, the intent of the Oath Keeper is good to go into different towns or states such as Ferguson, Oregon, and Nevada to uh, support other militia or other Oath, Oath Keepers because of perceived injustices. Uh, it does cause concern for when these individuals are going into these towns or going to these states and they're armed. And law enforcement is already faced with a number of challenges trying to, um, you know, if a, a, a demonstration is going on, trying to keep them calm. And then you have these individuals coming in from out of town with weapons. You don't know who they are. So, yeah, I think that that could definitely be a cause for concern for law enforcement and for the residents who live there. Um, if we just look at Oregon, for example, um, many of the residents there during the, um, during the standoff or the occupation, they did not want those individuals there. They wanted them to leave. So, yes, uh, I think future um, occupations or standoffs, I think uh, could lead for the for the oath keepers in general to have maybe a uh, negative connotation or not be that positive not be that uh, positive group or you know one uh, or a group that you think of that would be uh, supporters or defenders of individuals because they're coming off more as intimidators and um, coming in and kind of doing what they want. Looking at militia groups or what we could also call anti-government groups in general, we've seen an increased rate in membership of these groups since Barack Obama was elected in 2008. And I was wondering what your thoughts are on this and what this says about the fabric of these groups and their views of America today. Well, I think we definitely have seen an increase of recruitment and membership of anti-government, militia, white supremacist groups since his election. And we also saw it with his re-election. And I think the first part of the increase was due to the fact is that he was the first African-American president. And if we fast forward to his re-election, the discussion of gun control following uh, the Newtown, Connecticut massacre also kind of spurred or incited individuals uh, to either join um, these types of groups or for uh, groups to go out and recruit. 
The other thing that played a part in the increase in these groups was the economy. So at that time, we saw a sluggish economy. There were a lot of anxieties uh, about the country shifting demographics, as well as other controversial issues such as health care reform and, 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 and immigration. And uh, if we look at the Oath Keepers um, as part of what they believe, they actually believe that it's uh, only a matter of time before President Obama finds a reason to impose some type of martial law, ban interstate travel, and, de and detain citizens. <clears throat> so, um, in these situations, some members plan to make their uh, to make fortified bunkers, stockpile survival gear, have generators, food and weapons, uh, you know, if necessary. And, um, you know, and this kind of touches on also that uh, conspiracy theorist uh, belief that we touched on earlier. To bring the talk to a conclusion, looking at the recent events that the Oath Keepers have been involved in, especially Oregon, and looking at what we've discussed with the mixed membership um, not being greatly prepared for Oregon, for instance, do you think that this will be a changing moment for the Oath Keepers? Will we see better management of the group in the future? Will we see more armed standoffs, standoffs, excuse me, or potentially less standoffs? What does all of this mean for the future of this group here in the States? Well, I don't think there'll be change unless the organization uh, as a whole sees that there's a problem. So if they didn't see from the Bundy standoff to the Oregon occupation that there was not a lot of support there, if they don't see that as a problem, then I think it's going to be business as usual. I, on the other side of that, if they saw, hey, we didn't have the turnout that we thought we were going to have, we didn't have the support from the people, a lot of people were making fun of us online and, you know, sending us stuff in the mail that we didn't want. I think that that's when we'll see the change in how the organization operates. So then maybe it's not those individuals that are able to um, represent the Oath Keepers and go take over a building or identify as an Oath Keeper and go to Ferguson and stand on a rooftop uh, with your weapons drawn. So I think that there, there may be change if they see that there's a problem with if we compare the event from 2014 to the event in 2016. But it's not until they see that there's a problem or that they realize when they had people show up in um, in Oregon, it wasn't just militia. They had sovereign citizens. They had white supremacists. They had people from various backgrounds, and mixing all of them together could also be a potential problem. Um, we did see... Um, um, those that self-identified as militia, taking on sovereign citizen ideology, uh, white supremacist mixing with sovereign citizen ideology, so making it, uh, you know, uh, kind of like a hodgepodge of ideologies coming together. So I think not until they see that there's a problem will there be a change, but if they don't see that, that there was a problem between the two um, two events, I think it'll be business as usual. Well, I want to thank you for coming on the show, Kim, and providing us really insightful information on this group that hasn't really gotten a lot of attention. So I'm so happy you came on the show to discuss this with us. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun.